Hello, everyone. This is Tony Skaggs, your host of Tapa Talks. Today's episode is brought to you by Abvi Medical Affairs. For more information, visit their website at hcv.com. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Ryan English, the current president of Tapa. Ryan is a Texas native who discovered his passion for medicine on a trip along the Amazon River. Since that time, he completed his training at UNTHSC in 2016 and works in supportive and palliative care at Baylor Scott & White University Medical Center in Dallas. As a third career PA, Ryan brings experience from recruiting and unique perspectives on how wonderful it is to be a PA. Ryan is very interested in advocacy and he has been very actively involved in TAPA and AAPA since he was a pre-PA student. He has served as a committee chair, director at large, Texas delegate for the HOD, and is currently the president of TAPA. As a father of a 12-year-old and 8-year-old, Ryan loves spending time with his family, camping, exercise, and woodworking. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us on today's podcast. What's been going on in your life? Thanks, Tony. Yeah, I'm doing well. Lots of fun right now. It's wrapping up the summer and uh, wrapping up halfway through the summer. I don't even know. That's how busy I am. Legislative session ended. Tampa year is ending. I'm getting ready to hand off to Janeth Mills as the incoming president. Yeah. Let's do that. I'm going to go to Boy Scout camp with my son. So lots of fun things going on. Fantastic. I know you and I were talking before we even started the podcast and you know, we, we wanted to cover maybe two topics today, but the first one we wanted to talk about was about giving back to the profession, something that's obviously, you know, really important to both you and me. I mean, we're here right now. We're talking about our professional organization and so forth. But when you think about giving back to the profession, what does that really mean to you? You know, that's a great question because I know a lot of people hear that and think that we're here to ask for one more thing. And there's so many of us now that feel stretched or too tired or too tight and don't really want to think about doing a lot more stuff. But what it really makes me think about is when I was a student and I found that I did a lot better as a student and I slept better at night and I had a better time at school. If I was engaged in more things than just what I was doing right that day, if all I did was study for these next few tests and try to learn these lectures, I was kind of miserable. But if I signed up for committees, uh, especially ones that met during lunch, I could eat for free. Or if uh, I was getting burnt out and tired and wanted to re-engage, I would look at PA jobs or I would look at legislative things. I'd look at things that are happening kind of beyond me to re-engage why I'm doing all of this. And you know, now that we're in a professional phase of our career, we're working. And after you've done that for a while, some of the things that used to be exciting may be more routine. And it's easy to get bogged down or frustrated with a lot of the tedious parts of a job. And I think when we get to do something that's worthwhile, that helps connect us to the why, that that's really helpful in making all of the either not as exciting or tedious parts of the job work better. So when I think about giving back, I think about ways to do something beyond just our day to day that keeps us connected to the whole profession. Sure. And I know I've had conversations maybe on this podcast, maybe with just some coworkers and, and even my students because I work in education, that uh, I think it's kind of a common phenomenon with PA students, PA providers, where they get into whatever specialty they're in and they kind of put their head down and they just kind of grind away at the job without any real thought about you know, what's going on in their profession outside the lane they happen to be in. And also kind of like what you just mentioned, that you know there's an altruism to it, plus there's, there's a way to kind of mitigate the stress that one has in their job by giving back. Uh, at least that's kind of the way I look at it. And I'll be very honest uh, to anybody listening. I, I was kind of a late comer to the whole giving back thing. And uh, I wish I'd 
give it back sooner. But probably the only place I really gave back uh, significantly was precepting. And uh, that's, I think that's a great way to give back. And, and when you think about giving back, what are some of the ways you think would be advantageous for a PDA? You know, I think you nailed one of the big ones, precepting. That's something that we have all relied on. If, if you're a PA right now, then you're here because 12 to 14 people decided to give back that way and precept you. And that's something that we're always, as a profession, and you know this in education, we're always looking for clinical sites. And that's the mm -hmm. choke point for a lot of health educations. Now that we have a flood of other professions also trying to get in our clinical sites, whether it's doctors or MPs or whoever, it's more and more critical that we invest back in that. That's how I have done a lot too at work, precepting students. And man, there's nothing that is more fun and makes me feel more smart than getting to precept it. Right. Uh, things that I take for granted and feel like, well, everybody knows this. This is easy. Like, oh, I'd learned that here. I didn't know that when I started. I didn't know that when I graduated necessarily. Or maybe I should have, maybe I didn't. But it's so much fun to get to preset students. It does take some work. It does slow you down. But it's also makes it so much better. Sure. Yeah. And I will tell you right now, just all those PAs out there that might be listening, understand that most PA programs, especially in Texas, don't pay their preceptors. The preceptors do this out of the kindness of their heart, not to sound too cliche, but but I agree with Ryan 100%. It is very rewarding to precept a student. Sure, there's some frustrations that come from it. And you even mentioned, uh, and I got to say this, you mentioned slowing you down. Uh, I was actually part of a study that looked at people that had students versus didn't have students. And FTEs are pretty comparable with students and without students. So the students, a lot of times, once they kind of become a little bit more productive, they can actually become a bit of a resource when you're in clinic. And for all those individuals out there having to recertify, you're going to learn a lot from your students for that kind of stuff. So it's a great way to give back. Plus, it's a good way to keep yourself sharp. Absolutely. But, well, that's good to know that it doesn't slow us down. <laughs> to be clear, it was a small study, pilot study. Let's call it a pilot study. But it was interesting. You know, we looked at FTEs and individuals that took students that didn't take students. And, and both in Texas and Washington State, it was right after I moved back here. And the study showed that productivity didn't diminish significantly. It is more work. It is more work when you have a student, no doubt, because you're having to train that student. But, but man, it's a good time. I mean... I've got lots of great stories about precepting students. I'm sure you do too. Oh, absolutely. I actually today at work, I got to work alongside a PA that I had precepted when she was a student and she came to, to join the hospitalist team was, was where I was when she was a student. I love getting to run into her because there's lots of fun stories about the weird things that, that we did while she was a student, Man, making our answer pages to the nurses and ask uncomfortable yeah. questions to patients that you have to ask, but it's uncomfortable and uh, it says, so it's always fun. Yep. I mean, I have stories that are not podcast worthy or pod that I can tell on the podcast. <laughs> so then, I mean, I think afterwards we'll talk about those, but crazy stuff. But students are amazing. I mean, because seeing the light bulb go off uh, where you're like, oh, and we were all there at one time. That's probably just kind of bringing it back to around what you had mentioned is that somebody did it for us. And uh, I can probably hammer on this for quite some time, but you know, right now, how much it costs to go to PA school is definitely, especially in the state of Texas, is reasonable, uh, especially among some of the public schools. And the reason it's reasonable is we don't pay for our sites. You know, people are doing this out of the kindness of their hearts and God bless them. You know, it's one of the things that I think about, I look back, is the people that helped me get here. Because even as a pre-PA, there's a lot of people that went out of their way to spend time talking to me or help mentor me. I think that's another great way if you have either your clinic or through a local K program or through TAPA, um, you can help mentor new career PAs. 
or PA is a different a different stage than you, or maybe it's a student getting ready to graduate. But having that engagement and being able to share your wisdom with somebody is really, really powerful. They get so much out of it just being able to ask you questions. It's not nearly as hard as working because you're just talking about what you've done and what you think. And it, just those times together can help recharge you a lot, but it also gives so much back to that mentee that you're working with. Definitely. I, you make a great point that there's all kinds of PPA professional organizations at universities and so forth. If you have a university near where you're practicing, almost guaranteed they have a pre-PA society. And I know that when I go speak at any kind of pre-PA society, and I promise this doesn't come from a place of ego or hubris or anything like that, but you know, it is clear that you have been on a path or on a journey that they want to go on, right? And to see that somebody has been successful at it, you can actually give them insight. Oh, it's, it's, that is very rewarding. And it also kind of reinvigorates my own interest in my own profession, you know, cause I'm kind of like, you know, they, they want to give back and what the hell they want to give back is to be a medical provider. And I like to think that I can be kind of humble, but we all have something to offer. We just do. No, absolutely. And it's like you said, it's really great to see that enthusiasm that reminds you maybe how enthusiastic you were at one point. Right. Right. I always think of being a pre-PA and seeing PA students and just was so like excited to talk to them. And he's like, man, you guys are in PA school. That's so amazing. I really hope to get there. And just seeing the like exhaustion and pain on their face and like, <laughs> what you understand, you have, you have the thing that I want. I really work. You need to get that. And they're like, I, I get it, but you don't understand. It's really hurts. <laughs> but it's recharging for them. Even when I was a student getting to do that, it was recharging. I think in, you know, as you move on into actually working, there's ways to do that. Whether you're mentoring or, you know, one of the other things I think about, if you work for a system or, you know, a health system or a hospital or a big clinic with lots of locations is participating in some of the committees they have. There's always workforce committees or antibiotic stewardship committees or engagement committees, things like that. Not that anyone wants to have more meetings, but man, it is fascinating when you see how the sausage is made, if you, you know, know the expression where you get to get behind the scenes and be a part of the discussions about how decisions are made for budgeting and policy and throughput and procedure, because a lot of those decisions impact everyone in the clinic. And when you get to help speak up and give insight into those, you can really change what your day looks like and you can really change how everything works at your client for the better. So that's another fun one that doesn't have to be more work. It doesn't have to, you don't have to be on every single committee, but doing something like that every once in a while can really, really give you a different way to engage what you're doing. Right. And also you think about second or third order effects on doing something like that is there's hospitals out there. I know it's hard to believe where there's individuals on committees. They don't even know what a PA is, you know, and until they actually interact with you, you are putting our profession forward. And that's something we've talked about in this podcast before, too, is that we're always trying to break new ground, place ourselves in situations where we haven't been before. And I can't overstress, I am late to the party, but I find myself trying to venture outside of my regular PA lane, being on, not only on committees, but in professional organizations that are not PA-centric, just because I want people to know that I'm a PA, you know, and this is what PAs do, because it gives you an opportunity to educate those that don't know anything about what we are. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think, you know, when I look around at some of our peer professions, I think of the first people that come to mind are nurse practitioners and physicians, right? Because we occupy some of the same space and role in, in different ways. And they come into their profession with a lot of established brand recognition 
and a lot of acculturation in their training on who they are and how they fit into things. But they get a really rich enculturation into advocacy and pride in their profession. And I feel like PAs are still learning how to do that and how to build that more into our education and our training because we get marvelous clinical training. We get really good, I think I'm a little biased because I can't say all this, but I would think we really do get excellent clinical training and excellent ideas into how we should fit in the team and how to work as a team. But what we don't always do is know how we need to protect our profession or how we need to make sure that we're doing what we can to continue to grow instead of stagnate or disappear. Having those times, even if you're not someone who's going to be TAPA president and testifying in Austin and going to all the meetings, if you just join a committee and talk about what PAs are and how we fit, that makes a world of difference. Definitely. And I kind of want to circle back around to something. This maybe kind of moves into our second topic a little bit, because you mentioned what it was like when you were a student and so forth. And, you know, maybe I I kind of want to speak a little bit to, uh, you know, if there's anybody listening right now that is not a PA that wants to become a PA, what were your experiences like when you were early on moving towards the profession, maybe when you were in school? I'd, I'd like to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was fascinating. I got into this mostly because I helped with a health clinic and a dental clinic on a mission trip. We're in the Amazon or in the jungle. I was getting to do all kinds of stuff as a completely untrained person, just right, which was really invigorating. I came home, I was like, oh, I want to do something in health. And I researched it all and I landed on PA because I love this profession. I love the idea of being flexible and being able to fit in different roles or different gaps or different spaces and different points in my career, depending on the needs. And I really liked stepping into that role where we're you know, diagnosing and treating. We're kind of trying to investigate and solve these medical problems. When I started on that journey, I got early advice to get patient care experience, which I think was really, really helpful to me. When I went through school, we were just at the point where I feel like things were starting to shift where instead of half and half or one third, two thirds, where people would come from experience to not where it seems like for a while, we've been a lot heavier on having students come straight through school. And that may not be true. Your program or some programs, or maybe I'm I'm already outdated with my information, but I remember seeing this this swing and I felt like I was really benefited coming into this as a non-traditional student, having that patient care experience that I could add to the viewpoint of my class. So I was glad to have that advice. And I went around and hounded every single PA or PA student I could find to harass them for any kind of thoughts or advice or pearls. And it was really, really fascinating to hear everybody's different opinion. But like you said, a lot of folks, everybody consistently wanted to be an excellent clinician and wanted to be excellent at what they do. I met a lot of TAPA folks early on because I got to go to a conference. So I met a lot of PAs who were also passionate about advocacy. And I met a few people who tried to talk me out of being a PA, which I thought was fascinating. Stop there for a second. I want to hear about that. Why would somebody try to talk you out of wanting to be a PA? So the three people that did this, um, none of them were PAs. I'll say that. One was an anesthesiologist who was really nice, but he wanted an anesthesiology assistant, I think, instead of a, a CRNA for whatever reason. And so he tried to talk me going into AA school. And one person was a, an RN who had a mathematical algorithm for if I did a travel nursing gig and worked in this state for this long and got this many overtime hours, I would make more than a PA. And like, that sounds really great. That is not at all relevant to it is really life or anything I can, <laughs> I can 
How do I argue with that? I don't know how to respond to that. Thank you. The only one that came close that I that I think about, I say this as a joke sometimes, but one of the people on that mission trip was a dentist and tried to talk me into going into dental school. And his whole pitch was nothing to, at all to do with dentistry. It was just the no call, work three and a half days a week and make large piles of ink, which is not a bad thing. I know for me, the, the thing that made that argument relevant was that's just not really what I wanted to spend my days doing, you know? Right. And I'd come out of other professions where I had the potential to make lots and lots of money, but I was just kind of miserable in those jobs. And I still, to this day, when I even think about that, if I'm feeling tired or burnt out or, or if I'm trying to find, uh, you know, one more extra shift to pick up or whatever, I still think about how much I love getting to do what I do and working with the patients the way I do and getting to plug into the, the system I'm in. It's just really, really great. So those are the only people that try to talk me out of it. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, and I don't want to ho hog the the mic only because I work in that the world of individuals that are kind of wanting to move towards the profession. But and I think I think it's uh, a little bit disingenuous if you don't say, okay, finances and how much I will make it does figure into the equation. But there is such a balance between how rewarding a job is and how much money you might make because uh, being a PA can be lucrative. It can you can make make decent money, but it isn't everything. Yeah, hearing it's interesting how we kind of enter into the profession. I got to talk about this. Like, I became interested in the PA profession back in like 1991. That's how long I've been around. God, it's embarrassing. But with that said, I remember going to a, uh, a EMT school, and the program director for the EMT school was a PA. Andy, if you're listening, I'm talking about you. And I just remember thinking that guy is so cool. You could look at him and know that he knew stuff, right? Yeah. So I knew when I saw him, I found out what he did because it was the first time I'd ever heard of there being a, that, that what a PA was. I knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do. I was a corpsman and I didn't want to do that. And then I ended up working with him at a later time around 1995 or so. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, four or five years went by. And once I started working with him, my initial feelings became reality. He, he was great. I saw what he did. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I think that what he did for me, I think it's important that we do for other individuals that are interested, that we show them an, an example of what it can be like to be a medical provider and, and yeah. uh, provide care to individuals and, and so forth. We'd like to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, hcv.com, presented by AdV Medical Affairs. hcv.com is a comprehensive website for healthcare professionals about HCV or the hepatitis C virus. Designed by AdVie U.S. Medical Affairs to provide you with education and resources all in one place. Learn how chronic hepatitis C is diagnosed and treated with comprehensive guides and quickly accessed go-to references at hcv.com. If there is somebody listening right now that's interested, you know, they've, they've come across our podcast, what advice might you give either a non-traditional learner or maybe somebody who's currently working on their undergrad? What advice might you give them regarding investigating the profession? Yeah, that's a great question. I think some of the most important things are to spend time with people doing the job that you think you want to do because it looks really different than what you hear about or think about. That's one of the things I loved about working in a hospital as a patient tech. I was getting all my prereqs and I got to work with PAs in different fields. I got to see physicians and physical therapists and I got to see nurses and I got to see everybody and see what those roles were like and ask them about it and see what parts of their job they were exhausted by after 10 years of doing it, what parts of their job kept them there. And I think that kind of experience really, really makes a huge difference. 
The other thing I would say is if you want to be a PA, you're like, oh, I've done all this investigation. This is where I want to go. Try to get as much good and varied experience as you can. I, I think there's a huge advantage to having been around and cared for and touched patients before. So if there's a way to get in a clinic, in a hospital, anything like that, to where you can deliver care, I think that, that makes a enormous amount of difference in not just your application, but in the kind of PAD you get to be eventually. It certainly gives you a shortcut when you start dealing with patients as a PA. You at least know what a sick person looks like or what that smell is or you know what it's like to, to listen to vitals or do CPR, things like that. Those are huge, huge, huge parts. But always make sure you like what you see when you watch people doing their job. Oh, and the other thing, sorry. Third, third thing, got to make it in threes. We touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but any job that's really exciting will not be exciting later. The things that really give you an adrenaline rush and a big thrill will have a, a dulled response over time, whether it's six months or six years or 16 years later. But the annoying or irritating or unbearable parts of a job will always be that. They tend to not get better with time or they may get a little better, but not at the same rate. So if you're a part where you're like, well, I want to go be an orthosurgery PA, I know for sure. I want to be in psychology and inpatient psych and make sure that you not only enjoy the fun parts of that job, but that you are not devastated by the downsides of it. That the things that you don't love about that job are just fine, that they don't drain you. You know, that's interesting when you say that. It's, we're kind of talking things here today that, that you mentioned, you know, what this job will be like in... 10 years or 15 years. I remember when I was doing my clinical rotations, I worked with a pediatrician and I know when I entered into my clinical rotations, I had like, I know I want to be a blank. I thought I wanted to be an ortho, right? And I quickly realized I didn't want to be an ortho. And so I worked with this pediatrician, loved the guy. Yeah, He gave me probably one of the best pieces of advice that a provider could give. And he said, you got to make peace with the big five. And I was like, what's the big five? And he said, any job in medicine that you you get into, any specialty, are going to have five things that take up 80% of your time. Like, for example, like if you were in ortho, you know, it might be, and he and he didn't know, and I don't even know, but he's like, it might be like telephomoral syndrome, lower back pain, you know, things like that. He says, if you can handle looking at that 80% of the time for the rest of your life, then, <laughs> then by all means, all means, go ahead and pursue that profession. And I'm kind of like, but if you can handle that, then you need to think about a different specialty. And I was like, that's amazing. That's great. You know, because I ended up in family medicine and I'm totally fine with treating diabetes and hypertension and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm totally fine with it, you know? Yeah. And uh, the other thing that you mentioned I wanted to circle back around on is, you know, as far as advice to to giving individuals that are kind of interested in this. One thing I can definitely say, and, and this kind of speaks to what you've already said, is that you are a non-traditional learner. I would even say to anybody that's listening to this right now that's interested in becoming a PA, and they might find themselves in that non-traditional learner, you know, that type of individual. Yeah, don't let that be a deciding factor because I can tell you right now from an individual that works in that world, non-traditional learners bring so much to the table when they're in their program, when they're in their clinical rotations, when they get into practice. You know, and I tell you right now from our program, and I think we're kind of representative of the programs out there in that they want to have non-traditional learners in there. So I would just say, you know, please consider applying and move past that concern if you have it. So, and you mentioned you were kind of non-traditional, you know, and you, you mentioned also your previous medical experience. 
how do you think that helped you in your your rotations? How do you think that helped you in your, your didactic? Oh man, it was extremely helpful. One, I had a lot of background in you know corporate world, or I did recruiting before this, but a lot of my time was spent just on the phone talking to people. So I had a lot of practice in conversations or building rapport, and that helped me feel comfortable talking to people about uncomfortable things. But having that patient tech experience, so I got to work on a bariatric floor for a year, a med surge bariatric, and I got to work in a general ICU for two years. And recognizing someone who's getting sick or very ill or who's getting worse was invaluable. Even if I didn't know exactly what was going on, I could come out to my preceptor and say, this person looks terrible and I really think you need to see him right now. Knowing what it looks like or feels like to do CPR on someone and being able to not freak out when that happens. Uh, I joked about smells, but man, there are a lot of smells in medicine. And if you are at least a little ready for that, that's awesome. I, I think the biggest thing, you know, I was really fortunate to, especially, you know, on the med search floor, but especially in the IC floor as well, get to work shoulder to shoulder with several PAs, with a lot of really great physicians and a ton of excellent nurses who really helped me dial in to what was happening with the patient moment to moment or having that time at the bedside and seeing what a difference some of those things can make. I think that insight into the patient's experience, getting to see just how miserable it is for somebody to be sick and be stuck and not have very many actions or choices they get to make in their time. Seeing what a huge difference like just getting a bed bath makes to somebody who had a giant surgery and can't move and has been dirty for three days. Those kind of things have always helped me be able to understand and have compassion for and humanize a lot of the patients that may have been just in a very different place than me or be out of my experience or have something that I'm used to dealing with. I know in the, hosp in the hospital, when I was uh, with hospital medicine, we had uh, heart failure patients all the time. I felt like I was always on the heart failure floor. So a lot of those things were very routine. I was very familiar with it. And it would be easy for me to take for granted how terrifying or shocking even the word failure and heart failure is for some people who are unfamiliar with it. And I think having those experiences, being equipped with seeing that beforehand, even getting to watch people come in and explain things medically to patients and their families and do that well or do that not well and see how much of a difference it made really, really helped me as a student on rotation and then graduating when I started working, hopefully help my patients, help me present with them better. Very cool. And just kind of bringing that whole individual that want to be a PA kind of to a close, I would I would only advise individuals out there, if you're interested and you're currently in an undergraduate program. Uh, seek out pre-PA organizations. If you're a non-traditional learner, you've already graduated, uh, seek out information sessions at, at uh, the programs that you might be interested in. There's all kinds of good information, all sorts of ind individuals that want to support you on your journey. And kind of bringing us all the way back to the beginning, you're about ready to step down as president. What's next for you in the TAPA? Yeah, so I am a couple weeks away from handing over the gavel, so to speak, to Janet Mills and you know, for our role, when you win the election, you start on the board as president-elect for a year, and then you move into the president role for a year. And so now I'm going to move from that into the immediate past president year, where I'll still be a voting board member, and I'll be there to handle some specific duties and whatever things Janice wants my help on, really. She'll be, she'll be the boss, so we'll see what she wants me to work on. But a lot of it is geared towards either elections or building leadership pipeline 
or continue on some of the work we've done this year. I know for me, one of the things I'm excited about in the off session time where we're not in a legislative session is continuing to build some of the, the partnerships we've had with other professional organizations. You know, this year more than in the past, I believe we have gone out of our way to not just engage with some of those other professions, but to you know help support their bills. And we can put in cards of support or go on to uh, meet with them and talk through issues to try to help the legislature know that, you know, it's not, not just the two people they think of when they think of healthcare, you know, there's more of us than just doctors and nurses and we all need to be able to take care of patients. Well, I tell you, I want to thank you for all you've done. Even meeting you, it's been awesome, you know, and I think you've done a great job as president. Thank you very much. And I look forward to our future interactions. I'm not just saying that for the podcast. I think that you did a great job in president. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been yeah. really, really great to get to do that. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Man, don't go away. That's all I'm saying. Stick around. I need to. I need some Ryan in my life. I'm just saying. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to still host the Challenge Bowl. They're going to have to pry that microphone out of my cold, dead hands. So, oh, please, please let me be part of that, Ryan. You do not know how badly I want to be part of that, Ryan. That's the most fun thing I do all year, every time. Oh, gosh. I got offline conversation. I'm circling back. Once this, Good. Once this podcast recording is over, circle back on this, Ryan. Good. So, uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I love again to be here. And thanks to everyone for listening to Tapa Talks. Join us each month as we take a look at the professional lives of those that focus on the health of all Texans. We would like to extend a special thanks to our episode sponsor, hcv.com, presented by AbbVie Medical Affairs. For more information, visit their website at hcv.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you'd like more information about the Texas Academy of PAs, be sure to visit us online at tapa.org. I look forward to seeing you next time.